go to the Lord in prayer and we will continue to study the Word of God verse by verse this morning. Father, we're grateful that You have laid out a feast for us in Your Word. Lord, there is milk for the infant, the newborn babe, and then there is deeper truths, going deeper in the same truths, real meat for those who are maturing and wanting to go deep in the Word of God. And that's our desire, that everyone would go from children to young men to fathers, that everyone would go from milk to to solid food, and that we would know and love the Word of God. And we're thankful that you have given us teachers. Lord, we see the fighting and the quarreling going on in Corinth over certain teachers. But we're thankful for all the faithful teachers you've given to your church. They're all ours. They're all gifts to us. And uh, we want to use all of the gifts you've given us for our edification and growth. We're thankful for your wisdom, Father. We know that the wisdom of the world is folly before God, as Paul says. And uh, Lord, that just is so abundantly obvious in our culture today. Such foolishness, running rampant everywhere. I mean, there's fake news everywhere, but we have real news, truth in the Scripture, because the wisdom of God is true wisdom. The, the, the seemingly foolishness of God is much wiser than the supposed wisdom of men. And we, th- we thank You for the wisdom You've imparted to us in Your Word. We're thankful that we have the mind of Christ. We th- we're thankful that we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And it's such a joy for us to know that we are secure in Him. What a wonderful reality. Thank you for the church. Thank you for our privilege of gathering together to worship you. And uh, we're grateful for everyone here this morning. And I pray that as we continue to worship you uh, through perhaps the most important means of worship there is, that is the Word of God, hearing and responding to the truth, our prayer is that you would help us to know your word better. Our prayer is that you would stir our hearts and our affections to worship you in spirit and truth, and that you would be glorified in all that takes place this morning. And we pray these things to that end. Amen. All right, well, as you know, we are currently in the study of 1 John, the book of 1 John. So you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And this morning we're going to continue our verse-by-verse exposition of 1 John by looking at verses 3 through 6. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. In chapter 5, verse 13, John states his main purpose. He says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John's theme is Christian assurance. He writes so that those who read the letter can come to have confidence in the reality of their salvation. His theme is assurance. Assurance is a very important topic, isn't it? None of us want to swing out into eternity without certainty as to where we're going to go when we die. None of us want to gamble with our eternity. We don't want to die without certainty of where we're going to go. And yet the consciences of many in our culture are plagued with uncertainty, plagued with a lack of assurance. Assurance is like an elusive treasure that everyone is seeking to get their hands on, but it just is ever fleeting. People struggle to attain assurance. Even many professing Christians live their lives without any certainty as to where they'll go. You can even ask them, where will you go when you die? And they say, I hope heaven. I thank heaven. But rarely do they say, I know I'm going to heaven with absolute certainty. Assurance It's a struggle. In fact, many live with uncertainty. They live in fear of impending doom and judgment. They fear death because they're not confident in their salvation. The Puritan Thomas Brooks put it this way, 
Assurance is a pearl that most want, a crown that few wear. He says most Christians live between fears and hopes, and hang, as it were, between heaven and hell. Sometimes they hope that their state is good, at other times they fear that their state is bad. Brooks was right. Perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps you struggle to have assurance and certainty of your salvation. But assurance is just something that many Christians struggle to attain. If you're struggling with that this morning, you're not alone. Many in the world of Christendom struggle with that. And it doesn't make it any easier when there are false teachers who distort the truth and then make it even more hard to figure out if you have assurance. Roman Catholics, for instance, would tell you that there is no way you can have absolute assurance. Absolute assurance is impossible according to Roman Catholic dogma. At the Council of Trent in the mid-1500s, the Catholic Church stated this, and I quote, "...the believer's assurance of the pardon of his sins is a vain and ungodly confidence." Unquote. In other words, the Catholic Church says you cannot have any certainty that your sins are forgiven. You can't have assurance of your salvation. And this is because the whole Roman Catholic Church is a system of merit. It's a system of merit. It's a cooperation with God. God does His part, you do your part. Man is saved by grace, they say, but also by works. It's grace and works. It's a combination of the two. In fact, their catechism states that a man is justified by faith, baptism, and keeping the law. That is official Roman Catholic dogma. And by the way, you can always lose your salvation because of certain sins, and then you need to get it back through acts of penance. That's the reality of Roman Catholic theology. In other words, you get God's grace, but you have to earn God's grace. You have to merit God's grace. They have a whole chapter about merit in their catechism. You merit the grace of God. You have to put yourself in a place where you're worthy to attain saving grace. No one can ever be sure in a system like that that he has true salvation. No one can ever know if he has enough merit, enough sincerity, enough good works. No one could ever be certain that he has salvation. So the Catholic Church conveniently invented the doctrine of purgatory and indulgencies so they they could give assurance to certain people. Because there are certain people who are baptized believers, but maybe they don't have enough merit to go straight to heaven. So when they die, they go to this fiery place where they're purged for their sins, and then only after that are they fit to go directly to heaven. And you can even do certain things, like give money, give alms to the poor, things like that to get time out of purgatory and find forgiveness for certain sins. There's no way in that system or in any man-made works righteous system that anyone could ever have assurance of their salvation. Apart from the true Christian gospel, apart from true Christianity, biblical Christianity, no one can ever have real substantial assurance. But as 1 John 5.13 implies, we can have real absolute assurance we can know with certainty that we have eternal life. Subjectively, inwardly, we are convinced of our salvation by the work of the Spirit. The Spirit convinces us that we have eternal life. In Romans 8.16, Paul says this, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Later in 
1 John 3.24, John says, We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. So the Spirit then provides us with some sort of an inward subjective assurance. He convinces our hearts that we do indeed belong to Christ. He provides a subjective assurance. But we know that there are some people in our culture who have seemingly absolute certainty of their salvation. It's kind of the flip side. There are some people who are saved and they struggle to have assurance. And on the other side, there are people who just know for certain they're going to heaven and in reality, if they died today, they would go to hell. That's the horrific reality. So there needs to be more than just a subjective assurance. We need more than just a feeling of confidence. We need objective assurance. We need objective reality. Because Matthew 7 is the classical text, right? Jesus says, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the horrific reality. Many who profess to be Christians will die and go to hell. And they'll be stunned. They'll stand there and say, Lord, Lord, look at all we did in Your name. We... We gave money to the poor. We went to church on Sunday. We memorized the catechism. And he'll say, get away from me. I never knew you. That's the reality. In James chapter 2, James over and over again makes it clear that many have a dead, unsaving faith. Many have an unsaving religion and have deluded themselves and deceived their own hearts. So the question is then, how can we have confidence, objective assurance that we are in the faith. Because you see, we understand the Christian Gospel, right? We understand that God is holy, God is righteous, we are not, we are sinful, we deserve wrath. Jesus is the God-man, He lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, bore God's wrath for sinners, rose again, and we understand that salvation is applied by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from law and apart from works. However, that faith is a repentant faith that has verifiable fruit as its evidence. So the question then is how do we distinguish between a false faith and a true faith, between dead faith and saving faith? How do we do that? We do what Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? We need to test ourselves. There are objective tests laid out in the Scripture by which we can verify the reality of our salvation or the lack thereof. We do what Peter said in 2 Peter 1.10. We make certain about His calling and choosing of us. We make our calling and election sure. So though there is a subjective assurance provided by the inward work of the Spirit, there is also an objective assurance. The Spirit testifies to the reality of our salvation both inwardly by convincing our hearts and outwardly by the work He produces in our lives, by the fruit He produces. So that's the issue then. Each of us, this morning, must be able to determine the difference between true faith and false faith. To see whether or not we're truly in the faith. We'll just leave you with this question here. If you die today, where would you spend the rest of eternity? Perhaps a better way to put it is this. Where will you be five seconds after your heart stops beating? That's an 
question and we want to know the answer to. And we want to have a certain answer. So that's the issue. Each of us must be able to determine, determine objectively if Christ is really the propitiation for our sins, if we are really forgiven, if we are really in the faith and really headed for heaven. How do we do that? The answer is the objective test that John lays out in this short little letter. We examine ourselves with these tests, and if we, if we pass the test, we can have confidence we're in the faith. If we fail the test, then we can have confidence that we are not. John's already provided us with a few tests. We've seen the doctrinal test. True believers believe the truth about Christ, that He's fully God and fully man. We've seen the moral test. The true Christian does not live in sin, but he confesses his sin and is forgiven of his sin by the work of Christ. And now this morning in the four verses before us, John yet again drives home the moral test, but this time he does it from a different perspective. Let me read our text. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says He abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Surely there was a word that stood out to you as I read the text, and that should have been the word no. The word no. Verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know Him. Verse 4, The one who says, I have come to know Him. Verse 5, By this we know that we are in Him. This passage is about how we can know that we know Him. How that we can know that we're truly in the faith. And in these four verses, John presents the moral test yet again, and he does so by highlighting three things. The assurance, the deception, and the goal. The assurance, the deception, and the goal. But first of all, notice the assurance. We see that in verse 3 and again in verse 5. Look at verse 3 with me. By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Now, you're not going to see this probably in your English Bible, but in the Greek, it begins with the word chi. It's the word and. It establishes the connection here between this passage and the previous passage. John has just stated that as true believers, when we sin, we are forgiven by the work of Christ. Because He is our righteousness, our advocate, and our atonement. But the question now, then, is how do we know that we're true believers? How do we know that He is our righteousness and advocate and propitiation. And John answers the question. He says, and by this we know that we've come to know Him. By this. The issue then is how we know we know Him. How we know we know Him. And remember, I told you this before, to know Christ is to be saved. It is the equivalent of being saved. In John 17.3, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Salvation is knowing God. If you know God, you are saved. If you do not know God in Christ, you are not saved. So the issue is how can we know that we are saved? And John says by this. Here is an an objective test by which we can attain true and real Christian assurance. 
He says, we know, we've come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. There's the test. That's the test. If we keep His commandments. That word keep, terao, it, has the, it can be translated in many ways. It has the idea of guarding, uh, watching over, protecting, to watch, to keep intact. It means to attend to carefully. And here it has the idea of, of staying on the right path. You're watching and guarding the right path. The path of obedience. The path of obedience. It refers to a habitual pattern of life. To keep God's commandments is to live habitually in obedience to the commandments that God has given. Our lives, if we're true Christians, are no longer dominated by sin. They're no longer dominated by disobedience. They're now dominated by conformity to the commandments of God. So true Christians keep the commandments. Which commandments? Which commandments? You know, today you say something like that and people say, oh, you're a legalist. Keep the commandments? What are you talking about? Right? What, what, what is the common cry today? We're not under law. We're under grace. We don't have to keep the commandments. The commandments are irrelevant. We don't need the law. You're a legalist. But that's not the truth of Scripture. So what's commandments then? The answer would be all of them. All of them with a specific emphasis on the moral law. The moral law. You know, when Paul makes that statement in Romans 6 that we're not under law but under grace, he does not mean that Christians are not obligated to obey God. That's not what Paul is saying. Surely no one in their right mind believes that. I mean, just read the New Testament over and over again. There are injunctions and commands and imperatives and reiterations of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant moral law. Clearly, we're to obey God's law. What does Paul mean then when he says we're not under law but under grace? Here's what Paul means. He means, first of all, that we're no longer under the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant. We're no longer obligated to keep those ceremonies. Those ceremonies have been done away with in the New Covenant. He means that we're no longer under the moral law as a covenant of works. We're no longer under the condemnation and power of the law. We're no longer damned because of our breaking the law. Christ died for us, took the punishment, and we're forgiven. Let me... Let me kind of show you this. In the Scripture, the Bible teaches that Christ has both abolished the law and yet not abolished the law. That sounds strange, doesn't it? That sounds paradoxical, even contradictory, that Jesus has both abolished the law and yet not abolished the law. Let me read two passages that will show you this. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read this. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups, that is Jew and Gentile, into one, the church, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Did you hear that? Paul says that Jesus made peace between Jew and Gentile, and how did He do it? By abolishing the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So Paul says Jesus abolished the law 
contained in ordinances. That's the ceremonial law. Those are the laws that separated Jew from Gentile, such as the sacrificial system, the dietary laws, the Jewish uh, festival days. Those ceremonial laws which separated Jew and Gentile have been completely abolished. But in Matthew 5.17, Jesus says this. And we're familiar with this statement. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. So wait a minute. Did Jesus abolish the law or did He not? What's the answer? Yes. That's the answer, right? He did. But He abolished the law and He didn't abolish the law. He abolished the ceremonial law, but He did not abolish the moral law. In fact, that's what Jesus goes on to talk about. He goes on and clarifies what aspect of the law He's talking about. Because you know, I've told you before that there is a threefold division of the law. We'll look at this in detail when we come to that in the confession. But theologians call it the threefold division of the law. There's the moral law, there's the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. The judicial law is just really the legal implications of the moral law. The ceremonial law has been abolished. But listen to what Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 5. In verse 19 He says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So did Jesus teach that we're not still to keep God's commandment? No. In fact, He taught that if you say that you can annul these commandments and teach others to disobey them, you're least in the kingdom. That is to say, you're not in it at all. You're not esteemed at all in the kingdom of God. And then in verse 21, Jesus mentions the sixth commandment. He says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. In verse 27, He mentions the seventh commandment. You shall not, or he mentions the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. So Jesus in Matthew 5 is talking about the moral law. He's talking about the moral law. The moral law is never abolished. It's never abrogated. It stands forever because it is a reflection of the very nature and character of God. The moral law has existed ever since man was created. It's written in the hearts of all men. The moral law stands forever. It is binding upon all men in all generations, ages, and covenants. And the moral law, as we know, is summed up in two commandments, isn't it? What are the two commandments that sum up the moral law? We are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, right? The command to love. Jesus gave us that. And then He said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Everything commanded of us is fulfilled in that word, love. In Romans 13, Paul said, He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you love God, you're not going to worship idols or blaspheme His name. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to murder him or steal from him or kill him or take his wife, etc., etc., etc. Love, then, fulfills the law. And that's what Paul means in the book of Galatians when he mentions the law of Christ. The law of Christ. It's the moral law of God summed up by Christ and love God and love your neighbor. John kind of gives us his own version of that summary. Go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 23. 
I must have given you the wrong verse there. There is no verse 23 in chapter 4. Chapter 3, verse 23. That's better. Chapter 3, verse 23, John writes this. This is His command. Okay, you ready? This is the command. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. There's the two great commandments. To love God is to believe in the name of His Son, and then we are to love one another, love our neighbor as ourselves. And if you do that, you fulfill the whole moral law because love is the fulfillment of the law. That fulfills every other commandment, right? If you love God, you'll do what He said. Remember the Great Commission passage. Jesus says, Go, disciple the nations, teaching them to do what? Observe all that I've commanded you. That's the discipling life. That's the Christian life. To obey and observe everything that Christ has commanded us. So John says, true believers keep God's commandments. They're characterized by obedience. And there's two things to note here. First of all, you need to realize what John is not saying. John does not say, by this we come to know Him. As if we're saved by obeying the commandments. That's not true, right? That's a lie. That's a false gospel. The idea that you're saved by your obedience. He doesn't say, by this we come to know Him. He says, by this we know that we've come to know Him. This is not about the means of salvation. This is about the evidence of salvation. This isn't the meritorious cause of salvation. It is the fruit and result of salvation. Obedience, then, is the mark of a true believer. A second thing to note here is that John is not talking about perfect obedience, is he? He's not talking about perfect obedience. We know that because back in chapter 1, he says if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. None of us yield perfect obedience to the law. None of us obey Christ perfectly. So it's that word keep again. It conveys the idea of a habitual pattern of life. At conversion... The pattern of sin is broken and replaced by a pattern of obedience and righteousness. So obedience is the evidence of salvation. We know we know Him. How? Because we do what He says. We obey His commandments. In John 14, 15, Jesus said this, If you love Me, you'll what? Keep My commandments. So how do you know you love Christ? Keep His commandments. Very simple, right? How do you know you know Christ? You keep His commandments. So how do you know you're saved? You obey His commandments. You live a life of obedience to Christ. Brothers and sisters, is that true for you this morning? Is your life marked by obedience or sin? Is it marked by righteousness or unrighteousness? If it's marked by obedience, then you can have confidence in your salvation. If it's marked by disobedience, then you have reason to fear. And today is the day of salvation, you need to come to Christ in true faith. So that's the assurance, obedience. But secondly, notice the deception. The deception. Look at verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. This kind of sounds what John sounds like what John said back in chapter 1, verses 6-10. through 10. In verse 6, if we say. Verse 8, if we say. Verse 10, if we say. And now here in chapter 2, verse 4, it's the one who says. 
John is yet again exposing false professors, false converts, those who say they love Christ, those who say they know Christ, those who say they're in the faith, and yet in reality, they are not. John is exposing false conversion. In chapter 1, verse 6, it's if you say you're a Christian while living in sin, you're a liar. In verse 8 and verse 10, it's if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. And now here in chapter 2, verse 4, it's if you say you know Christ and do not keep His commandments, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So in chapter 1, we saw the moral test stated positively or, or negatively. True Christians do not live in sin. Here, it's stated positively. True Christians obey the commandments of God. That is the evidence of true conversion. But the one who says, I've come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. That means habitual sin and disobedience in the life of a professing Christian demonstrates that his claim to faith is ingenuine. It is not true saving faith. It is false faith. Anyone claiming to know Christ while living in disobedience to His commandments is a liar. He's not saved. You cannot claim the promise of forgiveness. If your life is marked by constant disobedience to the commandments of God, you cannot claim the promise of forgiveness. Christ is not the propitiation for your sins. You're not in Christ. You're not saved. You're a false convert headed for hell. And that, hopefully, is a wake-up call for you to come to Christ in genuine faith. Again, back in Matthew 7.23, we read perhaps the most dreadful words in all of Scripture. Jesus says, Many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, and then on that day, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you who what? Practice lawlessness. You hear that? Those who are exposed on the day of judgment as false converts are those who practice Lawlessness. It's the word anomia. Anomia. Two Greek words. Ah, which means no, essentially. And the word nomos means law. No law. Literally. Someone who lives as if Christ has given him no law to obey. Someone who lives with complete and utter disregard for the law of God. Someone who lives autonomously. Autonomous, two words. Atos, the Greek self pronoun, and the word nomos, self-law. I'm a law to myself. I'm the governor of my own soul. Anyone who lives like that doesn't know Christ. Because true believers have submitted themselves to the Lordship of Christ by faith, and they reveal that reality by obedience. So, so much for the notion that true Christians don't have to keep the law. On the contrary, Jesus says those who live lives of breaking the law will not enter the kingdom. They're the ones that will be told, depart from me, I never knew you. In the book of Titus, Paul described a group of false converts there in Crete. And he says this in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Anyone who professes to know God, to know Christ, while living in disobedience, denies his profession by his life. He, with his walk life, he denies his talk life. With his walk, he denies his profession. 
He is, as it's been commonly said, a professor, but not a possessor. He claims eternal life, but he doesn't really have it. He's a false convert headed for hell. You know, the false gospel that really permeates our culture today, outside of the idea of Roman Catholicism, salvation by works, the most predominant false gospel today is that of easy believism. The idea that I can just be saved by walking up to the front of the church, praying a prayer, signing a card. By the way, you've noticed we don't have altar calls here, right? That's intentional. You don't need to come up front to get saved. That's not biblical. There's no altar call at all in the Bible. Salvation is from personal repentance and faith in Christ. You can do that in your chair. You don't need to come up front. That creates a false assurance that because I came up front and signed a card, I'm in. Because I wrote in the back of my Bible the date of my salvation, I'm in. That is a lie from hell. And many people have died in their sin with absolute confidence that they're saved because they went up front, prayed a prayer, live like the devil, and are stunned on the day of judgment that they're denied entrance into the eternal kingdom. So we get it. Salvation is by repentant faith, not by some dubious faith. So today, friends, the question is not, do you intellectually agree with gospel facts? The question is not, do you go to church? The question is not, do you read your Bible? Do you know theology? Do you memorize Scripture? The question is this, is your life marked by obedience or disobedience? That's the test. No matter what religious activity you've done in the name of Christ, if your life is not marked by consistent, increasing, growing obedience, you are not truly in Christ. The person who says that is a liar and the truth is not in him. He doesn't believe the truth. He doesn't say the truth. He is self-deceived. So that's the deception. That's the deception. But in verse 5, John takes us back to the assurance again. Look at verse 5. But whoever keeps his word... In Him the love of God has truly been perfected. Again, we see that word keep. Same word as in verse 3. The word has the idea of habitual pattern of life. Habitual obedience. And here the object of our obedience is not said to be His commandments, but His Word. His Word. That is to say, God's law, God's commandments are contained in the Word, in the Scripture, in the Bible, and true believers in contrast to false believers, are known by their obedience to the Word of God. True Christians love the Word of God, they love the Bible, and they obey the Bible. That's how you know a Christian. Or to put it this way, a true Christian is a person of the book. He's a person of the book. The contrast couldn't be any any clearer, could it? Very clear. Listen to what Ephesians 2, 2 says. It says that unbelievers are sons of disobedience. That's what an unbeliever is. And then in 1 Peter 1, 14, believers are defined as obedient children. That's the question. Are you obedient or disobedient? That's how you know if you're in the faith. In Ezekiel 36, God makes a wonderful promise to His people. It's the promise of the new birth. Being born again. And listen to what God promises there. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. 
Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That's the great reality of the new birth. God gives you a new heart, new affections. You become a new person. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you, watch this, cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You hear that? That's the reality of the new birth. You get a new heart, you get the indwelling Holy Spirit, and He causes you to walk in obedience to His Word and commandments. So the evidence you've been born again, the evidence of regeneration, is obedience to the law of God. In the book of Romans, Paul wrote wrote what is probably the greatest treatise ever written on the doctrine of justification by faith alone apart from law. And even in that book, Paul affirms the necessity of obeying God's law. Because you see, this is what Paul's opponent said. Paul's opponent said, Paul's teaching salvation by grace apart from works. He's an antinomian. Paul is against the law. Paul nullifies the law. And Paul cleared that notion up. He said this in Romans chapter 3, verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Do we cancel it out? May it never be. Strongest Greek negative. Absolutely not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Salvation by faith alone in the true gospel does not cancel the law. It establishes it. It upholds it because we use the law for its rightly intended purpose, namely to bring us to Christ by faith, and then those who are in Christ by faith are enabled by the Spirit to obey that law as a pattern of life. Romans chapter 8, Paul puts it this way. The requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who are in Christ have the Spirit of God living within them and enabling them and empowering them to carry out the law and obedience to it. So John says in verse 5, the one who keeps his word, that's the true believer. In him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Now what does that mean? Is John saying that we love God perfectly? Is that what he means? Do any of us love God perfectly? No. If we did, we would be perfect. So what is John saying? The word perfected here translates the Greek word teleao, and it just has the idea of coming to a completed goal, an intended purpose. John is saying for those who are true believers and they obey God's commandments, the love of God in them has been brought to its intended purpose, namely, leading them to true salvation and obedience. You see, God's love has provided all that we need for salvation. He's given us new hearts. He's forgiven our sin. He's given us the gift of the Spirit. Our love, which is produced by God's love, then moves us to obey the commandments of God. That's the perfected intended purpose of the love of God in our hearts. So the issue then is one of love, not legalism. It's about love, not legalism. It's not so much about the law as it is about love for the Savior. Again, in John 14, Jesus says this, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. You want to know who loves Christ? Look at their life. Is it marked by sin and immorality and idolatry and blasphemy? Or is it marked by obedience and righteousness and love to the Savior? 
Later in chapter 5, John says, This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome to us. We can say with the psalmist, Lord, how I love Your law. It's my meditation day and night. I love the law of God. True believers love Christ, therefore they obey Christ, and therefore they have real objective assurance. Now that brings us finally to the goal. The goal. Look at verse 6. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself walk in the same manner as he walked. That is the goal of the Christian life. To be like Christ. To walk as He walked. To be conformed to the image of our Savior. That's the goal. If you're a true believer, that's your goal. That's your goal. Later in chapter 3, John says this, Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as he is pure. Anyone whose hope is fixed on Christ is going to demonstrate that reality by seeking to become like Christ. Seeking to imitate the Savior. Romans 8.29 says that God, for those whom God foreknew, He also predestined them to become conformed to the image of His Son. You are predestined to be like Christ if you're a Christian. That's the goal. That word ought here, it carries the idea of moral obligation. We ought to walk as He walked. This is our obligation. This is our duty to be like Christ, to live like Christ, to walk like Christ. We all know that in the beginning God made man in His image. The image is marred by sin, but it's progressively being restored in us in our salvation and sanctification, and it will be perfected in us at our glorification. But until then... We have to walk as He walked. How did Christ walk? How did Christ walk? Let me give you two verses that will answer that. Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us. Christ walked in love. He walked in love. John 15.10, Jesus said this, If you keep My commandments... You will abide in My love just as I kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus walked in love and obedience. And that is what we are to do. We are to walk in obedient love to the commandments of God and those who do can have real assurance of their salvation. So that's the test. It's the test of obedience. Assurance comes through obedience. Deception is claiming to know Christ but living in disobedience. And the goal is to obtain real assurance by becoming like Christ. So the question again, friends, is do you really belong to the Savior? Is your life marked by obedience or sin? Does the Word of God dominate your thinking and your actions and your life? And again, this John's purpose is not to cause his readers to doubt their salvation. His primary purpose is to convince his readers of their salvation. So that's my primary purpose. I'm convinced that I am among a group of people who know and love Christ, and so my hope is that you are encouraged by this. That you can look at your life and say, yes, I sin, I stumble, I fall, I'm not perfect, 
but Christ is the love of my life. I seek to be like Him, and I can see growth and obedience to His commandments. And if you can say that, praise God. You can have confidence today that you truly belong to Christ. But, if you have no regard for the law of God, no care for the commandments of God, then friends, there is a problem. And you have a reason to be afraid. You have a reason to fear. In fact, if you die in your current condition, hell will be your eternal abode. And my plea is that you would come to Christ today. He's the sufficient Savior. He bore the wrath of God. His obedience is accredited to our account, so it's our obedience, and we're saved by obedience, by the obedience of Christ, by the work of Christ. And then we'll know it because out of love for Christ, we'll become obedient to Him. So if that's you today, if you're not sure of your salvation, please come talk with me. I would be glad to counsel you, to point you to Scripture, and help you to find real assurance. But if you do pass the test, be confident that Christ has forgiven your sin, He's your righteousness, your atonement, and your advocate at the right hand of the Father. What a promise. What a promise. You want assurance? Listen to the hymn. We are all familiar with this one. The hymn, Blessed Assurance, says this, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. Don't you want that blessed assurance this morning? Then trust in the finished work of Christ, and out of love for Him, obey His commandments, and you'll have reason for real assurance. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that You've given us the litmus test of true Christianity in Your Word. Real, objective test by which we can measure the reality and validity of our faith. And my hope and my prayer is that as we continue to work our way through 1 John and consider these various tests, that Your people would have confidence. If there's anyone here this morning who was hanging, as it were, between heaven and hell, my hope and prayer is that they would leave today with confidence that they're headed for heaven, that they know Christ, and that they're forgiven of their sin by His work on the cross. And if there's anyone here today who's not convinced of that, Lord, I pray that You would do a work in their hearts even now, that You would draw them effectually to faith in the Savior, and that You would provide them with that real assurance. We thank You that You have given us that privilege. Assurance is our privilege as children of God, and we delight in that. So help us now to live lives that are pleasing to You, to delight in Your Word, obey Your Word, that we might have real assurance for Your glory. Amen.